Hey, last week I, I made mention of, um, of a theocracy, and we talked just briefly about the Muslim theocracy versus the Old Testament theocracy, and I made the statement to you that, uh, you know, one's right and one's wrong. That's just as clear as it can be. And the Old Testament really has the living God uh, as our God who established his own theocracy, and the Muslim theocracy was also always, it was always misguided. It was not led by the Word of God. It was led by the imaginations of men. And false religions are always established that way. That sounds very uh, narrow-minded and bullheaded, but it's just the way it is. If the Bible is the Word of God, it's the Word of God. Uh, and uh, I was asked by one of you afterwards uh, to comment on the uh, Crusades and compare those to the uh, actions of ISIS and the President's comments at the Presidential Prayer Breakfast a couple of weeks ago in which he made an apparent equivalence between uh, the Crusades and uh, the actions of ISIS. And I I just say this, you know, uh, we have to be very careful as uh, Christian men about how we assess politics because that that could be a very complex business. Uh, It's possible that someone in office would hold to a, a vigorous biblical view and yet be very careful of what he's saying in public. Like he should be very careful what he says in public. And uh, the other thing is, you can say something that's true in public as a politician, but it gets very badly misunderstood or gets sucked into a, a, a medium uh, that uh, distorts your message, and you have to be very careful of what, what you put out there. So I can certainly understand from a political point of view that the president wants to make it clear, a couple things to make clear. One is he's president of all the people regardless of their religion. And uh, if we have a Christian president, which is kind of rare, but if we ever have one, uh, we want them to be careful to make sure that uh, all of the people know that uh, regardless of their religious background, he will uh, defend them and support them and be their president. So that's one thing. The other thing is, uh, in international diplomacy, we have to be very careful about what we say, how we word things, because it gets, once again, taken into their context and misinterpreted. So I certainly sympathize with our president and all of our presidents in trying to be very careful about how they word things uh, for military purposes and for political purposes. Uh, The irony of the statement in the presidential prayer breakfast in which he mentioned the Crusades is that that was very impolitic. Uh, Anyone who knows anything about the Mideast, they know that that's all they need is to hear our president uh, mention the Crusades as a morally parallel event that justifies all of their wicked behavior. So I, I thought the irony of the uh, political correctness was that it was vastly incorrect politically. It didn't help us very much. Uh, but on the theological side, if we could speak to that for just a moment, let's talk about the parallels. Of course, the Crusades were wrongheaded. Uh, the Pope and many other people thought they had a theocracy, and they don't have a theocracy. Uh, it's a vastly misunderstood idea of church and state being united. And even to this day, the Vatican is a state. And I, I think that, that as the Roman Catholic Church matures, and I say this, I know we have several of you who are Roman Catholics, I believe it needs to mature in its view of church and state because I think that's wrong-headed to think that the kingdom of God now is a theocracy and has a state attached to it. So I'd have to say that, first of all, the Crusades, among many other problems that initiated the Crusades, uh, it, was, it was a faulty view of church and state. In which case, the church then has to defend uh, its property through military action. 
And as one of my Jewish rabbi friends said to me a few years ago, you know, uh, we disagree with you, presidents, on almost everything. But he said, one thing I want to credit you with is the, the philosophy of church and state, and the separation of church and state. And I said, well, it's good that you're grateful for something. But I said, I got, I got something else you'd be a whole lot more grateful for if you if you'd put your faith in Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, uh, he was grateful for separation of church and state. I think that was a contribution that the Protestant Reformation made to Christendom. So that now we understand that we do not have a theocracy. We have the church in dispersion among many nations. So uh, it is true that the Crusades were a wrong-headed action, military action taken by those who saw Christendom as a combination of church and state. That part is true. But here's what's not true. Uh, whether you take the Crusades or the civil rights uh, or the uh, oppression of uh, African-American slaves uh, uh, here in, uh, in America, uh, those were often justified by biblical verses. That's true. But look at what corrected those things. What corrected them was a true understanding of the Bible. So when Dr. King was preaching in the 50s and 60s, why was it that he eventually won the argument? The reason he eventually won the argument is because from your mama's knee, she had embedded Bible verses in your head and you couldn't deny that Dr. King was right in your deepest conscience. So the reason that he was successful under God was that he was appealing to something that black and white and everybody else knew down deep in their hearts he was onto something. And so the Bible itself corrected the perversions of the Bible in the previous centuries. Here's the problem with Islam. There's no correction. The Quran, if you read it in its own context, justifies jihadist behavior. The Quran does teach combination of church and state. There is no distinction between church and state in orthodox Islamic theology. So if we ask people to read the Quran more carefully, they're going to be more sympathetic toward jihadists. You say, well, I thought Islam was a peaceful religion. Well, there are some peaceful things said in Quran, but in the Quran, those are largely in the earlier parts of the Quran. In the later parts of the Quran, you find the jihadist and other violent statements. And the uh, rule of interpretation in Islamics is that the most recent statement trumps the previous statements. Just like Muhammad is allegedly the last of the prophets and therefore he's greater than all the previous prophets including Jesus. So in Quranic interpretation you always take the the last statements as the most authoritative ones that interpret the earlier statements. And unfortunately for all of us in humanity the violent statements are at the toward the latter half of the Quran. So in Islam itself, you do not have a self-correction. You have only encouragement of more wicked behavior. Now there's a huge difference between two religions. And the problem I have with some politicians is when they try to be politic, they end up going too far and making statements that sound that, like they are saying that all religions are morally equal or, or they're equally true. Listen, they couldn't possibly be both true. They could be both a lie, but couldn't possibly be both true because they contradict each other. And they're certainly not morally equal. So to that extent, uh, I would disagree with the president's parallels with uh, excesses uh, of wickedness in the Christian history. 
And the kind of excesses that we're seeing now, which are expressive of many excesses that we've seen in Islam through the centuries, uncorrected. And there is no correction for it. That's the problem with Islam. The deeper you get, the worse it gets. Now you say, but I know some peaceful Muslims. I do too. Uh, I'm friends with them. I know and Muslims are people just like us. They, they want good things for their family. They want to live in peace. They want to build community in their cities. Uh, most Muslims are like that. But here's the reason they're like that. They don't really take the Quran as seriously as you take your own Bible. So they're the equivalent of liberal Protestants, if you will, who really don't believe the Bible that much. They just have a general religious sense, and they have a Christian tradition to which they hang on. That is where your peaceful Muslims are coming from. They have a Muslim tradition to which they're hanging on. But it is not, strictly speaking, uh, a uh, view of interpreting the Quran, uh, which is uh, taking the Quran literally seriously. That, that would be the reason that we have so-called peaceful Islamics. It's because of its uh, liberal interpretation of their own faith. Uh, whereas I, I believe with Christianity you have to say that those who are the, the messengers of peace are those who take the Bible seriously because Jesus says you should love your enemies, you should love your neighbors yourself, and you should lay down your life for your friends. So instead of taking other people's lives, we lay down our lives. That sounds very radical. That's right. And the reason we believe that is because it's in the Bible and we take the Bible seriously. So if you take the Bible seriously, that makes you a peaceful man. The only way you can be a peaceful Muslim is not to take the Quran seriously. Uh, That's the way I would see it. If you're being intellectually consistent. Now, happily, there are many inconsistencies out there. And I'm thankful for every one of them when it leads to people not taking my life. I appreciate that. So uh, there are happy inconsistencies in the way people approach their religion. I'm just trying to say that logically, uh, this is the difference. Logically, if you follow the Bible, uh, you'll be laying down your life uh, uh, for the cause of Christ instead of taking other people's lives. Logically, if you follow the Quran all the way to its conclusion, you will be able to justify jihad and holy war as a theocracy against other people. I hope that uh, makes sense to you. If it doesn't, send me another email. Okay, let's look at 2 Samuel chapters 9 and 10. And here uh, we really see some interesting behavior by David. And it's, uh, we'll see that it's even more interesting because it precedes chapters 11 and 12 when we get into David's adultery and other things. But here in 9 and 10, we're going to see something wonderful about David's sense of loyalty and what David's willing to pay the price for, what he's willing to lay down his life for. And I've often said something that makes a man a man is when he figures out what it is he should be willing to lay his life down for. I mean, we were, we were made to die, really. And that's the reason I think in Ephesians 5, when we even talk about marriage, you know, she's supposed to be respectful, and she's supposed to be, uh, you know, you know uh, she's supposed to submit herself to you as her husband, all this. You're supposed to lay down in your life and die for her. And it's just, it's interesting to me how men are really called upon to die. We're called upon to die for the sake of the kingdom. We're called upon to die for our wives and children. And I think it's important for every man to know what he's willing to die for. We're called to die for our country. We go into military service, and if we have a just war, and we're fighting under the aegis of our own uh, uh, nation, we must be willing to lay our lives down for the sake of justice. 
So men always need to know, what are you willing to die for? And I find here that David is willing to die for those things to which he has pledged his loyalty. And his loyalty really means something. His word means something. Those that he's pledged to be his friends, that means something to him. And David is always willing to make new friends. And we'll see that in this text. David and Jonathan had a great relationship. But we're going to see that that relationship with Jonathan goes even beyond Jonathan's life. Even when Jonathan's dead, David is faithful to his friendship to his late friend. It's amazing here how David's friendships really, really mean something to him. And it seems to me that a Christian man is one who knows how to make friendships. And when he makes them, he knows how to lay down his life for them if need be. Let's look at this in chapter 9. David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Okay, let's stop here and see Roman numeral number one, the Lord's anointed is loyal to His people. The Lord's anointed is loyal to His people. When God sends us the messenger, when God sends us the mediator, when God sends us the Messiah, He sends us someone who is loyal to God's people. David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness? Now this word kindness in Hebrew, is the word chesed. And I've spelled it there for you. You'll find it in verses 1, 3, and 7. This word is, the, it can be translated kindness. It can be translated grace. Uh, it can be translated faithful love or faithful loyalty. It's basically the word that's used when you have a covenant. So if you show 
kindness to your wife. It is loving kindness. It is loving, loyal faithfulness to her. So it's the compassion or care that you show when you make a covenant with another person. God shows us chesed in our covenant with Him. He's kind to us. He's loyal to us. David is, has made a covenant with Jonathan, as we saw in 1 Samuel. He's now, after about 20 years or 25 years, after years after Jonathan has died, maybe 15 or 20 years after Jonathan died, David is now saying, in gratitude to his heart, knowing that he wouldn't be there if God hadn't used Saul and God hadn't used Jonathan to put David where he is. And David understands he's been the recipient of chesed. And so he's saying, is there anyone to whom I can express chesed? Is there anyone in Jonathan's house? Now, why is this unusual? In the ancient Near East, and you find it also in Russia in the 19th and 20th centuries and many, many other places, when you want to replace a dynasty, gentlemen, you better get rid of everybody in the previous dynasty. And you'll even find it with Baasha and some other kings in Israel when there's a new dynasty coming along, a new cousin that's going to take over, they will destroy the old family. And the reason for that is if there is a prince left anywhere, then it is likely that 25 years later when he comes of age and has power and can build a political following, somebody's going to get behind him and start a a rebellious action within your own camp. So when you take over a dynasty, you eliminate, you always eliminate everybody in the previous dynasty family, dynastic family. Jonathan had asked David to make covenant with him that when Jonathan laid aside his apparent rights to the dynasty and supported David, who clearly had the mark of God's hand upon him, he made a covenant with David that he would not destroy Jonathan's house like every other ancient Near Eastern king would have done. And David promised to do that. As a matter of fact, he also promised to Saul in one of Saul's sane moments, realizing that David was his unintentional heir. Saul made an agreement with him and said, don't destroy my house. And David agreed with him too because he had already agreed with Jonathan. So you'll find a servant, a wealthy man like Ziba, with 20 servants and 15 sons, who was one of Saul's servants. He obviously, Ziba wasn't destroyed. David allowed him to keep his wealth and his prestige right there under his nose. Now, as they say, you keep your friends close to you, you keep your enemies really close to you. Watch, watch out, you know, keep your eye on them so you keep them close to you. David may have had some political reasons to keep Ziba close to him, but it was also because David had granted amnesty out of kindness to God's people who had been in the previous regime. But here David is looking for someone, and he's going to have to go looking because Mephibosheth is not stupid. He may have two lame feet, but his brain's not lame. And Jonathan heads out east of the, of the Sea of Galilee. He, he's over there in, in the, the, the land of Gad, probably, uh, hiding out, living sort of in exile, away from Jerusalem, because he knows he's a son of, the, of the former heir apparent of the late heir apparent Jonathan. So Mephibosheth is in Lodabar, way out there in the wilderness, and he gets a knock on the door. The king wants to see you. Well, if you're a prince, 
in exile and the king wants to see you, there's only one reason he wants to see you. And he wants to see you go to the gallows. That's what it is. So Mephibosheth, I'm sure, kissed his family goodbye and all of his friends and the fellow who was housing him, his name is Maker. We'll see him again later. Uh, and uh, Mephibosheth comes to Jerusalem and to his amazement, David calls him by his name. He comes into the king's presence. He's not just taken to prison or executed. He comes into the king's presence. And the king says, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth immediately throws his crutches aside, falls on his face, and said, I'm your servant. And completely you know, gives up and surrenders to David. And David's response absolutely blows his mind. He says, do not fear, verse 7, for I will show you chesed for the sake of your father. So instead of saying, I'm going to show you the axe in honor of your father, he says, I'm going to give you chesed in honor of your father. And then look at this. He says, I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Now let's back up and look at what has really happened here. Number one, A, he searches for us. David went searching for Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was probably five years old when he suffered his injury. You can read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 4 when they were racing away after Jonathan and Saul were killed and his nursemaid dropped him and he it, it crippled him in both of his feet. And here, David is going out to find this boy who's now grown up to be a young man and has a son of his own. That's another thing. Not only do you have Mephibosheth, who's a grandson of the former king, now you have a great-grandson. David is taking a huge liability to himself. Uh, and some would say he was being politically unwise. He was bringing someone who was out there in exile, bringing them into Jerusalem, where some of the old Benjaminites could have rallied around them and said, for the sake of Saul, for the sake of Saul, let's get behind Mephibosheth and his son Micah. And David took a risk by keeping Mephibosheth alive and bringing him into the capital city and giving him some of Saul's former property, almost setting him up as a rival. And you'll notice a little later on, a few chapters later, when Absalom drives David out of Jerusalem, David's own son. And Ziba reports out that Mephibosheth has tried to stir up trouble and build a new regime under Saul's old name. And it seems as though Ziba ends up slandering Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth defends himself later, and David accepts Mephibosheth's testimony that he hadn't been disloyal to David. But nonetheless, David's just creating tension. He's creating problems. He's creating, it's like Lincoln's cabinet. You know, you're just bringing in people who are going to disagree and cause problems. But David did it for one reason. He was loyal to his friends. And he was loyal to his word. And he was loyal to God's people. And that's what you see working through this. Has said is causing David to break all the social conventions and all of the common political conventions of his day uh, in order to be a man of God. And not only was uh, Jonathan uh, a, a legacy of Saul, but Jonathan was, I mean, uh, Mephibosheth was lame. So he's going to have to be cared for. 
So David has to assign Ziba, who's a, a wealthy servant of David's, to take care of Mephibosheth. So in every way, it's liability. And here you have a welfare program right from the very beginning. Why? Chesed. David's being loyal to God's people, caring for them, protecting them. And so he goes searching for him, first of all. And folks, of course the parallel is here with us. Who's Mephibosheth? It's you. Who's the one who goes searching for Mephibosheth? It's the the mediator, the, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the son of David. And why does he do it? You're you're only a potential rebel. All you're going to do is cause problems. We bring you into the church. One of these days, you'll just cause problems for somebody in the church. You'll be one more liability. But who goes and comes and gets you? It's David's son, Jesus Christ. He comes and gets you. You're lame and you're a legacy of the devil. Jesus said to to the Jews, He said, You're sons of the devil. Oh, thanks a lot. Great compliment. That's who we are. We were born in sin. We were conceived in sin, born in sin, and we've lived it out ever since then. And He brings us lame people in and includes us at His table. And He went searching for us. This story is absolutely unreal. You know, in every way in the ancient Near East, Mephibosheth didn't have a chance. He wouldn't have had a ghost of a chance to survive. Not only does he survive, David calls him, causes him to abound. And that's what Jesus has done for us. He has come to establish His kingdom. And He goes out and gets the weakest of us, the most problematic of us, those who might even end up being rebels from the inside, which Mephibosheth was uh, accused of later in his life. And He includes us. He searches for us. But notice in, verse, uh, in verses 7 through 13, He also remembers His promises to us. He keeps those promises. He says in verse 7, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Messiah comes to us and He says, I will show favor upon you for the sake of your father Abraham. Because in Christ you are in Abraham. You are elect in Christ for the sake of our Father in heaven who has put His name upon us. Jesus Christ comes to gather us and pull us into His kingdom. He keeps those promises, number one. In verse 7a, you see that He shows kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. Why? Because David made a promise to Jonathan. Now, it's 25 years later because Mephibosheth has grown up. He has a five-year-old boy now. It's got to be about 25 years later. David could easily have said, well, you know, it's been 25 years. Who remembers promises made 25 years ago? And after all, I was a kid. I didn't understand politics. I didn't understand the the way the real world operates. And I made that promise when I was 20 years old. Now I'm an adult. I'm, I'm, I'm a middle-aged man. I know better. I know that you know business is business. Politics are politics. Uh, who, who's going to worry uh, about s- some lame kid up east of the Sea of Galilee? I'm down here in Jerusalem where real life is taking place. David could easily have said that. And he didn't. Why? Not just because he took his own words seriously. It's because he took God seriously. And when we make a vow, we make a covenant, we make it before God. And the ultimate loyalty in our relationships with each other stems from our loyalty to God Himself. That's the reason that we must always speak the truth in love, in covenant love. Covenant truth in covenant love. And so He keeps His promises. And all of us need to be aware of our own vow taking. We've mentioned this uh, before. But... Think about all the promises that we've made. If you've 
joined a church, especially if you've joined a Presbyterian church, if you join this church, you take five vows. You considered those vows lately. You promised that you acknowledge that you're a sinner justly deserving the wrath of God and without hope save in His sovereign mercy. You, you pledge that you receive Jesus Christ alone as your Savior, who is the Son of God, and you receive and rest upon Him alone for your salvation as He's offered in the gospel. You promise to seek to live a holy life, to live a life as becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. You promise to participate in the work and worship of the church to the best of your ability. You promise to submit yourself to the government and discipline of Christ's church and to promote the peace, purity, and unity of the church. You vow those things. Those are your covenant uh, loyalties that you pledge when you become a member of the church. If you joined a Baptist church or uh, some other church, uh, those same obligations are upon you because that's just mere Christianity. You're professing your faith in the gospel and in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're pledging to seek to live a holy life by His grace. You're seeking to, you're promising and pledging yourself to participate in the work of the kingdom as a regular, engaged follower of Jesus and you're promising to promote the unity and purity of the church and the peace of the church. Those are pledges that we make for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. You grow up and what happens? Some of you want to get married. You take a vow there and you promise to be a loving and faithful husband in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and health as long as you both shall live. That is a covenant vow. Just like David to Jonathan, you're saying to your wife, you're now my best friend. We're in covenant loyalty to each other. And so she's not perfect and you're not either, but you remember what you said 25 years ago, 35 years ago, 65 years ago. You remember what you said. And that word still stands. Why? Because you said it before God. Even if everybody at your wedding is dead, you pledged and God heard it. You took a covenant vow. That's what covenant oaths mean. And you're willing to die for it. I had a man come to me one time and he said, you know, my wife is, is driving me so crazy. And he meant this literally. I think I'm losing my mind. And he said, and after all, I've got a bad heart. And it, that my ticker could go tomorrow. And he's, he's telling me this because he wants to justify divorce. You know what I said to him? I said, let your heart go. Forget it. See ya. Goodbye. You're a whole lot better off dead. He said, Pastor, you're telling me I'm better dead? I said, you're better dead than violating a covenant oath you took. And, and as your pastor would rather see you dead and faithful than alive and unfaithful. And I, I mean that with all my heart. I don't, I don't wish any of you ill. What I, I wish for you is, is the best. And the best is you keep your vows until you draw your last breath. And I know it's costing some of you dearly. I remember... Dr. McQuilkin at Columbia Bible College, now it's Columbia International University, uh, he was the president of the college until his wife had Alzheimer's. And then he just, he just left what he was doing, and he, he wrote all of his constituency, and he said, I have a ministry. My ministry is to serve my wife. And he did whatever it took. And, and this man was an author. He was obviously an institutional leader. He was a Christian leader, and he just devoted himself. And we all watched with amazement. Some of you are doing similar things. I remember uh, the, the time in which I, I cherished my wife the most was when she was in the hospital four times in one year. And I felt like I spent half the year uh, over there at uh, Baptist East. And 
Uh, you know what I found out? That's some of the most important ministry I've done here in 20 years. Just fulfilling your vows. What does it take? Just do it. And that's what David's doing, even at the risk of chaos in his own kingdom, in his own personal kingdom. This is what we're seeing here, is that vow-taking is a serious thing. Uh, in Ralph Davis's commentary, which I always recommend, he didn't write too many of them, but when you get one, use it. And he's got ones on First and Second Samuel, if you're looking for a good uh, commentary with good uh, devotional material in it too. But he tells of a, he gives an example here of, of the movie Out of Africa. And he says that Meryl Streep and Robert Redford are at the shore somewhere and they're talking. She wants him to marry her. And his response is, do you think I'll love you more because of a piece of paper? And Ralph Davis says, does he think that a vow is just a piece of paper? No, when you become married, which is by the state validated with a piece of paper, your marriage vows are not just a piece of paper. It is a solemn oath before the living God. And you're pledging yourself to protect this woman, to die for her. She comes first over your life. You give her your name. You give her your estate. You pledge the fullness of your love. I had a guy one time who, who uh, uh, was divorced and he wanted to marry uh, his second wife. Didn't have any children, but he wanted to prenup before he married the second wife. And I said, well, I can understand prenups when you have children by previous marriage and you've got to protect their estate. But I had to explain to him, you know, when you go into marriage, you're not protecting yourself. So if you have no one, if there's no third party to protect, you don't go into marriage protecting yourself with some, you know, exit strategy. You know, I'm going to preserve some of my estate, you know, mad money in case I decide to end this thing. And at least I can have a little hut somewhere in, you know, the corner of the universe. No, it's all in or nothing. I said to him, you have no one to protect but yourself, and I'm not interested in protecting you. I said, if you're going to marry this woman, then you marry her and take all the risks that go with vow-taking. He said, well, I don't think I'm, I'm ready to do that. You know, I got burned in my previous divorce. I mean, she just raked me over the coals. I, you know, she took more than half of everything I've got. And I said, well, you just need to take some more time and get healed up. Come back when you're ready to get married again. You know, if you're still so wounded from your previous marriage that you can't go all or nothing in the next one, then then go. You're not ready because it is all or nothing. And for me, it was nothing. So he went to Florida and got somebody else to marry him. Uh, (laughs) That's fine. Go ahead. But I happen to know what covenant oaths mean. The hesed means the kindness of covenant loyalty that calls for your life. And you're willing to die in order not to break covenant loyalty. And that's what it means to be married. Then some of you go on, you have children, you take baptismal vows. And you vow right there that you will teach them the Holy Scriptures, that you'll pray with and for them, that you'll uh, instruct them in the things of God, that you'll rear them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's a vow. We've got to take that seriously. And then some of you take ordination vows. And I suggest if you have, if you're a deacon or an elder or a pastor somewhere, just read, reread your vows every once in a while. Once a quarter would not be a bad idea. Once a quarter, I suggest, anybody here who's ordained, once a quarter, go back and reread those vows. 
You promised. You may not have remembered everything, but you can keep remembering it because you did say it. You said, I do, to all those vows. And you did it before the Lord. And if you're in a Presbyterian church, you did it in holy worship, in the presence of God and those witnesses. You need to go back and realize what you just said you'll die for. And if you're ordained in the church of Christ anywhere, you promise to die for the sake of the gospel of Christ. So here's what David is dealing with. He keeps his promises. He knows what he did. And he's reminded by the kindness of God toward him that he's to be expressing kindness in everything that he vowed. So he says, go find those people that I vowed to demonstrate God's kindness to. Go find them, wherever they are. Bring them in. That's what he did. But notice that he not only keeps his promises, he exceeds them. Uh, Number two, this is verses 7b through 13. He provides for us. He says, I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And then he embraces us. You shall eat at my table always. And he says that four times in that text. Verses 7, 10, 11, 13. You shall eat at my table. So David is bringing a potential rebel and enemy and putting and not only not, not only not executing him, not only giving him a little place to live somewhere in the corner of the universe, but saying, I'm going to treat you like a son. And so the Mephibosheth now is in the halls of power and prestige. He's treated like a very son of David because he's the son of Jonathan. It's amazing, God's grace, His covenant loyalty. When Jesus Christ came, He swore. And He swore by His own name because there was no name higher by which to swear. And He swore on behalf of you that He would give chesed to you, His Mephibosheth. He's gone searching for you. He's found you. He's brought you in. He's given you a place in His kingdom. And He sat you at His table. Which means not only fellowship, with Him, intimacy with Him. In the ancient Near East, you never invite someone to table with whom you're not reconciled. The only people you bring to your table are your reconciled friends. Jesus Christ brings you to table. And He not only brings you to table as His friend, but now He says, you're my brother, and now you're, you're a prince in the kingdom. And Mephibosheth, as well, has got adopted into the new dynasty. Absolutely amazing. Now, let's notice in chapter 10... The Lord's anointed is also loyal to all people. So yes, we have a covenant loyalty to one another. We promise to be brothers to each other in the church of Christ. We are to be Davids and Jonathans to each other in the church of Christ. But not only that, we now want to seek to spread chesed everywhere, God giving us the ability to do so. And David does that. Let's look at chapter 10. He even goes to those ancient enemies and tries to offer chesed to them. Verse 1, chapter 10. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally. There's the same word, chesed. I will give chesed. I will deal loyally with Hanan the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan their lord, Do you think think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? 
Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. Well, that must have been a good-looking crew coming back from battlefield, don't you think? Here comes my diplomatic corps. Half a beard and a shirt with no pants. Looking good, boys. You really make me proud. That's the way they look. So when it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed, of course. They were exposed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth-Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Maacah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Maacah were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I shall come and help you. Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together and had Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Helam with Shobak, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobak, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. Well, what you have here is David's willingness to express hesed even to the unbelieving world. Why? Because they had shown some desire through the previous ruler to be gracious to David. So David's willing to reciprocate. Gentlemen, this is what God's people do. Anytime we're given a chance to have a reasonable relationship with someone else, even a loyal relationship, even in a secular way, we take that opportunity. We're not cultic. It's not as though we have some Christian yellow pages and we're only willing to do business with Christians. We're doing business with everybody. And anybody who will deal honestly, and anybody who will make a contract with us, anybody who will do business and live life with us, anybody who wants to build community in this city or in this country, from any religious background whatsoever, come and we'll show you some aspects of chesed. 
that we've learned in our relationship with our Messiah and with our God. So Christians, believers, are those who want to make loyal relationships everywhere. David had experienced some treaty with the Ammonites through the previous ruler, and he died, and David wants to continue the relationship and show that he is saddened, and he wants to exercise good diplomacy, and he wants to build a relationship with the son, with the next generation, the next iteration of rulers in Ammon. So David shows chesed toward them as well. We should be doing the same thing. Sometimes you have someone who's acting so dysfunctional and you say, how can you, build, or how can you, how can you say love trusts all things, as 1 Corinthians 13 says? How do you trust somebody who's not trustworthy? Well, here's what you do. You give them every opportunity. It's like a child. You don't trust them with, you know, at five years of age with a shotgun, but you might trust them with a pea shooter, and let's see how they do. When they get to be about 10, 11, 12 years old, you take them out and you show them how to handle a shotgun. You don't trust them all by themselves. You're there with them. And then when they're 16, 18, you trust them to go out with a shotgun by themselves because they've learned the rules of the road. In other words, as they develop, you're looking for opportunities to invest trust in them. That's what it means to trust all things with other people. Same thing with unbelievers or believers. You want to try to trust them. And so you give them opportunities to be trusted. And David did just that with the Ammonites, and they didn't show themselves to be very trustworthy, did they? But you notice that he's making every effort. He's not the one who's holding back. He's not the one who's preventing the relationship from developing. David offers. And so what happens? You'll find that uh, A, in verse 2b, he has compassion upon all those who grieve. Doesn't it make sense? Whether your friend is Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or secular or whatever they are. If they lose a family member, they're sad. And if you love them, you go and express your sadness. That's what followers of Christ ought to do. We express compassion in 360, 24-7 to, to our friends. And we take risks in doing so. Uh, these Ammonites, you know, were a tough crowd. You can read about them in the Bible. They take people's eyes out. They're pretty violent people. But David had reason to try to trust them. And he did that. And he showed compassion when they were in sorrow and grief. But notice B, verses 3 through 5, His loyal compassion is often misunderstood. Christ's compassion is misunderstood. God's compassion is misunderstood. And the world misunderstands you. The world will mistreat you. There will be times when you offer chesed, loyal friendship to someone, and they spit in your face. Well, so, that's always happened. It happened with Jesus. Jesus was the kindest person the most chesed-filled person who ever walked the earth. He was constantly misunderstood. Don't be surprised. Jesus said to His disciples in John 15, if the world hated me, it's going to hate you. If the world mistreats me, it's going to mistreat you. Just consider the world's mistreatment of you one of the marks of discipleship, for heaven's sakes, and rejoice because you are now suffering with the prophets. That's what Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount. So his, his loyal compassion is often misunderstood. So what do they do? The king is convinced by his silly advisors that David is there to spy on them. And he believes that narrative. He's responsible for what he believes. You have advisors and you cannot blame your advisors for decisions you make. Your advisors give you the best advice they think they can give you. Sometimes they're wrong. And just because you have a... I've, I've, had, I've had people justify all kinds of things because my lawyer told me to. Now, Price, we love you lawyers. 
You're good people. We need you. You give us good advice most of the time. But you realize your lawyer, his job is to keep you out of court. His job is to protect you from all legal liabilities. That's the reason you hire legal counsel. His job is not to help you be a more faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. You're not paying Him for that. You want your pastor, your elder, your Sunday school teacher, or somebody else, your brother in Christ to help you with that. So therefore, sometimes you don't take the legal advice you get. And I've had people justify all kinds of things because they said, my lawyer told me to. That doesn't mean squat. It means that you're making a decision and blaming some advisor for it. This king made a decision. And he took advice from these bad advisors, and he did it. It's his fault. It's not the advisor's fault. It's the king's fault. And what does he do? He shames the messengers of God through God's servant David. Oh, I, I can't, I mean, I just, I don't want to be there when vengeance is exercised against those who mistreat the servants of God's Messiah. And that's, that's a picture of what's happened here. God's compassion has been misunderstood. Then you come to verses 6 through 19 to close out here. And you see that He, the Messiah, will punish all who reject Him. David defends his own messengers. David defends his people. David is God's anointed. Jesus Christ is God's anointed. And out of covenant loyalty to God's people... He will take vengeance because He will vindicate His own people whose clothes have been cut off right here and half their beards have been shaved off, who have been shamed before the world. We all know what shame feels like. We've all been in shameful experiences that were objectively shameful or subjectively shameful or both. We know what shame feels like. Jesus Christ has come to remove all of our shame. And he's come to take care of those who have perpetrated shame against us. And David goes in and 40,000 people are hung out to dry because they, they shamed God's messengers, the messengers of the Messiah. Do you understand how God has invested Himself in your life? Do you understand this? That He has adopted you as His child, that you are His royal children and His royal messengers. And when someone lays a hand on you because of you're standing up for Christ and being His man. Do you understand how God feels about that and what His plans are to do about it? One day we'll see it. It's going to be beyond our imagination when He comes back to make all things right. And so you have here almost a picture of Psalm 2 when the psalmist says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain and the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God has set His King, David, on Zion, His holy hill. The nations are foolish to conspire against Him. God has set His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, at His own right hand to rule over the nations. How foolish of them to conspire against the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And if they're wise, you come to the end of Psalm 2 and you see what the advice is. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. 
Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And you find here what happens. When these people have learned the hard way, they find out that God's anointed is God's anointed. And to oppose Him is the height of folly. And after you've lost thousands of lives, you'll eventually learn it the hard way to bow down and submit yourself to Him and become His subjects. And that's exactly what the Ammonites did. Because they understood that the deity is behind His own Son, David. And the deity, brothers, has appointed Jesus Christ to be our King. And we live in a day when there's blood and guts everywhere. People are dying and people are suffering. And God's servants sometimes look like they're the losers. But chapter 10 of 2 Samuel teaches you something very important. When God establishes a theocracy, the theocracy is going to rule. And that theocracy is coming back. Jesus Christ is coming to the earth physically. And when He comes physically, He'll bring His physical kingdom. He's going to reestablish the theocracy. You want to be sure that you've kissed the Son, that you've submitted to Him, that you trust Him, that you are enjoying a chesed relationship, a covenantal, loyal relationship with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's the message that we get. Now, what's ironic, we'll see next week. This great David, who's looking for people to whom he can be faithful, the very next chapter completely blows it. Okay, so he's more like us. We'll find out more about that next week. That, yes, when in this life, we can only imperfectly display the covenant faithfulness that God shows toward us. We'll see that next week in a very dramatic way. And we'll also find next week the solution. For when you break your promises, when you just completely blow it, and you, you've taken these covenant vows before the face of God and you just blew it, what do you do? We'll find out next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your chesed, loving kindness, loyal love toward your people. Thank you for numbering us among them. And we pray that we'll leave this place as people who know that you've been loyal to us and that you've sent us as messengers of friendship and loyalty to others and help us to express that chesed all around. And where we've made covenant vows, pray, Lord, you'll help us to restore our commitment to those promises that we've made in years past. And keep us on track, O Lord, because left to ourselves, we're hopeless. But by your Spirit, you keep us. You keep us close to you. You keep convicting us and granting us the gifts of repentance and faith that we may continually draw nearer to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.